We continue with the sermon series entitled Cloud of Witnesses. And if you have been a part of this for the last couple of weeks, uh, you have realized that the sermons that Stephanie and I are sharing are sermons that are written by notable personalities in the Christian faith. Uh, you have heard on the first Sunday of this series from Martin Luther. Some of you liked that, some of you didn't like it, but that's fine. It was Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther that was doing the preaching for us on Reformation Sunday. Last week, it was Fred Craddock who presented, and we have been challenged by these messages. I hope that you will again listen very keenly as another sermon is presented this morning. At the end of the sermon, I will ask the question, who was the original preacher of this sermon? And so be thinking of this. Don't let it be a distraction to you. I want you to concentrate on the message, but I also want you to be thinking who might have preached this. And then if you want to venture a guess, do so, and then I will do a reveal of who this is at the end of the message. The focus of these two verses in particular uh, draw our attention today. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The reign of Christ will issue victory over death. The last enemy, says the Apostle Paul in this passage. This is a good time for us to think about the kingdom of God. How far has it progressed among us? How far has the last enemy been overcome? A short while ago, the graves in the churchyards were decorated with the late flowers of autumn, so sad and beautiful, and people made pilgrimages to the cemeteries. We watched the last leaves fall, in the evening, a few were still left in the topmost branches, but by morning they were none. All the living things that had sprouted and bloomed succumbed to death. They were alive, but they belonged to death. They were only waiting for their time. Now death gathers its harvest, and nothing can withstand it. All this reminds us that life and all its joys Mankind and ourselves included are subject to death. When we share the experience of the decay of nature, we too feel drawn into the same cycle and we shudder as though the shroud of death were touching our flesh. At some time, you must have stood on a bridge and watched the water rushing past below on and on. It seemed as though the bridge were moving, didn't it? Everything around you seemed to be on the move. You braced yourself. You grasped the rail, seized by an uncontrollable fear, wondering if there was anything firm left to grasp. Once you clung to the rail, you awoke as out of a nightmare. You get the same feeling when you gaze into the stream of decay and death around you. Here, however... There is nothing firm to grasp, nothing to brace yourself against, no way to escape the feeling of being carried away. 
When we were boys, we used to play in the dry riverbed during the summer. We jumped from boulder to boulder until we reached the arch of the bridge, and there we tested the echo of our voices, and we stretched up and reached that black line, the high water mark. There were white boulders all around, making large islands. I would reach them by wading through the shallow waters lapping around them. When I got to one of them, I would listen to the quiet gurgling of the stream. And then I would be frightened. What if the waters should swell and the floods come now? My way to the river's edge would be cut off. Why shouldn't the floods come right now? Why not? Who knows? The big boys would laugh at me and say, it's midsummer and there's no more snow on the mountains. I would look away toward the far mountain range. There the peaks lay, bathed by the sun in a blue mist, so peaceful. I fought off the fear, but could not get rid of it altogether. We all walk along the dry riverbed, but no one can say it is summer and there won't be any floods. We see one island flooded, then another all around us. Men are suddenly carried off by hundreds, by thousands. We watch the water rising slowly and relentlessly around one or another close to us until in agony of fear he is swept away. That is why the main question in life is, how do you feel about death. Everything that captivates us and engages us is only of relative and temporary worth. In an instant, in the very next hour, it may become utterly useless. Death reigns outside. It reigns over you. Does death reign inside you? Or have you conquered it within? and settled your account with it. In days gone by, it was considered Christian to heighten men's fear and dread of death. A famous chaplain in a French king's court once pointed from the pulpit to the vaults where nobility were buried, lying in a row one next to the other along the wall of that royal chapel where the service was being held. He described to them how the dead used to sit there in times past in all their finery as full of life and gaiety as were his listeners. And he told them that they too would someday be under those stones decaying and rotting away. And after painting that gruesome picture, he thought his congregation was now ready for a sermon on repentance and eternal life. But what had he preached to them? The sovereignty of death, of death. Where there is terror and fear of death, there death reigns. I never felt that that so strongly as when I visited the Trappist Monastery at Olenburg, where every picture and every stone speaks of death. This clinging in fear and terror to the hope of eternal life is not the victory over death. 
the apostle is talking about. When he tells us that the kingdom of Christ will destroy the power of death, this is only part of what he is saying. For centuries, sermons have been preached on the terror of death in order to frighten men into believing in eternal life. And the result, numbness, numbness. What a strange and fateful phenomena in all spheres of life. Anything repeated over and over again loses its effect. A ball bounced hundreds and hundreds of times will finally not bounce anymore. The best medicine, take it day in and day out, will no longer at some point be effective. A truth constantly repeated, generation after generation, is eventually disbelieved. That is what has happened all around us. People are no longer moved by fear of death or by the hope of life eternal. All they ask is that death not be mentioned. And thus it seems a conspiracy of silence has descended. We all pretend toward our neighbor that the possibility of his death could never happen. No other rule of behavior is so scrupulously observed as this. The last favor we offer a man on his deathbed is the pretension that his sickness could not possibly be terminal. And if the patient realizes how serious his condition is, he still wants, as a rule, to hear the opposite. Some of you may know the touching tale of a contemporary French author in which a young widow takes her children every Thursday to visit a distant elderly relative. He has promised to remember her in his last will. One Thursday, they have taken the five-hour trip and found the patient worse. He feels wretched. Don't you think, he says, I should make out a will. Don't you think you should go and fetch the lawyer? But she senses the secret fear behind the question. Don't worry, she replies, you'll soon be better. And he smiles, reassured. The next day he's dead. Without having made his will, his closest relatives get everything, but she can comfort herself with the thought that she gave up everything in order to keep from him the knowledge that he was going to die. She did for him the last act of kindness. When a man feels the shadow of death upon him and has an urge to speak with his loved ones about it, to help him to understand it and face up to it, they stop him from doing so. They play a comedy, pretending that such a prospect is out of the question, keeping up the pretense to the very end. They believe they are doing him a service by persuading him not to think about it. But all they have done is to make him lonely. They've refused to help him. In this conspiracy of silence, Death asserts its rule over modern man. 
You can see as well as I the unnaturalness of this conspiracy. Let us observe ourselves at this very moment. Look at our involuntary embarrassment. We know each other. We share the thought that we all must die. We know that sooner or later a time will come for us to do the last honors or have someone perform them for us. First, they will stand in the street outside our homes wearing their black gloves in mourning, chatting with one another, discussing how long we had been sick, what we had died of, which doctor had tended to us, whether we had had an easy end or a hard one. And then they will turn to other topics. Although we feel this strange embarrassment, I yet believe we share an awareness that helps us to overcome the thoughtlessness with which death is usually ignored. It helps us to understand what the apostle meant when he said that in the kingdom of Jesus, the last enemy, death, will be destroyed. Death still prevails in the outside world and will continue to reign as long as the world lasts, but where men have inwardly overcome it, its rule is at an end. If this is true for us and other modern men, then the word of the apostle is on its way to fulfillment in another different, more spiritual way than he probably expected, but to fulfillment all the same. I would rather not speak here on the church's teaching about the death of Jesus or to what extent his death is a victory over death. What I am concerned about is the direct teaching which his spirit enacts in us, children of time, if we are serious about it and confident that there really is something of the spirit of Christ in us and that the profound experiences of life are taking effect in us. For surely you all agree with me that experiences exist which we feel to be Christian Events which represent for us the very heart of Christian truth because we want to look at the world in a Christian way. Those experiences take shape within us. They gain stature not only in ourselves but in those around us who are traveling along the same way. And let me say then that in our age, the spirit of Christ really overcomes death the last enemy by helping us to take a calm and natural attitude toward it. This view of death differs greatly from one in which men close their eyes and look away in terror. The natural contemplation of death can be comforting. Have you ever considered how dreadful it would be if our lives had no appointed end but went on forever? Even a man who has not been hard hit by misfortune in life shudders at the thought that life might never end. Can you imagine that as far as the eye can see into the future, we should remain enmeshed in the desires and troubles of this life and that all the ensuing envy, hatred, malice, our own and other people's should continue to pile up undiminished? If you have ever considered how intolerable the burden of life would be without the understood certainty that it has an appointed end, you know that death comes to all 
even to the most fortunate, not as an enemy, but as a deliverance. We must all become familiar with the thought of death if we want to grow into really good people. We need not think of it every day or every hour, but when the path of life leads us to some vantage point where the scene around us fades away and we contemplate the distant view right to the end, let us not close our eyes. Let us pause for a moment, look at the distant view and then carry on. Thinking about death in this way produces true love for life. When we are familiar with death, we accept each week, each day as a gift. Only if we are able thus to accept life, bit by bit, does it become precious. Only familiarity with the thought of death creates true inward freedom from material things. The ambition, greed, and love of power that we keep in our hearts that shackle us to this life in chains of bondage cannot in the long run deceive the man who looks death in the face. Rather, by contemplating his end, he eventually feels purified and delivered from his baser self, from material things and from other men, as well as from fear and hatred of his fellow men. Often we look at ourselves and others, we realize how weak and bad our lives are. This is because we haven't thought of death and therefore have not achieved an inward freedom from life. But even if a human being has been able to cope with the usual fear of death, and even if he has overcome his reluctance to think about it, and has looked it straight in the eye, even if he has managed to rein himself to the prospect of death, and even if he longs for it with the feeling religious poets have described so movingly, like the Apostle Paul who had to fight inwardly against that longing to stop it from becoming too strong, even such a man is still afraid of one thing, the fear of being torn from those who need him. This fear can never be banned. It sometimes overcomes us like lightning. A man and a woman have not experienced everything together in life. Unless looking at each other, they have involuntarily asked the question, what would become of you without me? A mother has not known the deepest relationship with her child if she has not suddenly been seized by a nameless terror, what would become of my child without me? For this is the deepest realization when we try to plumb the depth of life. What holds the deepest meaning in life is not what we hoped for nor what we wish from life, but it is the near and far people who are in need of us. This same fear overcomes us when we look at those who mean something to us and we ask ourselves in horror, what would our life be without them? 
face up to this fear too. Don't push it into the farthest corner of your thoughts. Have the courage to put it into words at the proper time. For something deep and sanctifying takes place when people who belong to each other share that thought every day, each coming hour may separate them. In this awareness, we always find that the initial anxiety about those who are left behind gives way to another deeper question. What will happen to that which was between us? Have we given each other everything we could? Have we been everything we might have been to one another? Is there anything we would like to undo? Something we wish had never happened? This concern then becomes foremost in our minds. We then feel we can bear the parting if we have treated each other with such love. What a different world this would be if men dared to look deeply at each other, if they kept in mind the prospect of being torn from each other. Each would then become sacred to the other because of death. How can death be overcome? by regarding in moments of deepest concentration our lives and those who are part of our lives as though we already, as though we had already lost them in death only to receive them back for a little while. But this is not an ordinary way of looking at death. It is what the Apostle Paul is always preaching in his letters as the first and foremost mystery of Christ's religion, that those who belong to the Lord in spirit have shared with him in spiritual experience his death and resurrection to new life. They now live in this world as men who are inwardly freed from the world by death. And what about immortality? You may think it's strange that I have spoken so much about death and not a word about immortality. The word one generally uses to dispel one's fears. Perhaps one has talked too much and too superficially about immortality in order to comfort people in the face of death. Hence, the word immortality has been depreciated. Immortality believed in for the sake of comfort is not genuine immortality. The impression it makes on us is as fleeting as a picture painted on a wall in watercolors. The next shower of rain will wash it away. It is imposed on people from the outside. They soon forget about it preferring to stifle their fear of death by refusing to think about it. But the man who dares to live his life with death before his eyes, the man who receives life back bit by bit and lives as though it did not belong to him by right, but has been bestowed on him as a gift, the man who has such freedom and peace of mind that he has overcome death in his thoughts, such a man believes in eternal life because it is already his. It is a present experience and he already benefits from its peace and joy. 
He cannot describe this experience in words. He may not be able to conform his view with the traditional picture of it, but one thing he knows for certain, something within us does not pass away. Something goes on living and working wherever the kingdom of the Spirit is present. It is already working and living within us because in our hearts we have been able to reach life by overcoming death. May Paul's words that in the kingdom of Christ the last enemy death has been vanquished, may Paul's words then come true in us. Of course it has not happened yet. Most people around us still live in bondage to death. They won't mention death's name and they refuse to think about it. But you, remember, you are called to save someone or other from this bondage. When the opportunity arises to say a word that might show him the way, don't hesitate. Amen. Does anyone here know who originally preached this sermon? What was that? That is a great guess and it is absolutely true. I don't know if everyone heard that, but this was Albert Schweitzer preaching. He was a young man at a church at St. Nikolai. The sermon was preached by Albert Schweitzer, an accomplished musician, missionary doctor, professor of theology, beloved pastor, and above all, a true humanitarian. He was born in 1875 along the contested border of Germany and France. As a student at the University of Strasbourg, he received degrees, actually PhDs in philosophy and theology. Following in his father's footsteps, he became a Protestant minister. To say that he was a distinguished theologian is, con is a considerable understatement. His book, Quest of the Historical Jesus, published in 1905, secured his place as one of the most foundational theologians of the 20th century. But did you know that he was also an internationally acclaimed organist. I think Tina knew that. He was an internationally acclaimed organist as well as the world's foremost authority in his day on the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. He felt a calling to the medical mission field and returned to school in order to to become a physician. In 1913, he traveled to Africa and built a hospital in the French Congo. His time on the mission field honed his philosophy, which he called a reverence for life. His friend, Albert Einstein, once said, Schweitzer did not preach and did not warn 
and did not dream that his example would be an ideal and comfort to innumerable people. He simply acted out of inner necessity. Aren't you glad that Albert Schweitzer is a part of the great cloud of witnesses?